feel like we're in church this morning. Amen. I almost, you know, if we didn't have class right after chapel, I might have said, why don't we do something? Uh, no, we can't go there. But it is good to have chapel or church in the midst of our time here at college. Amen? Where we can take a little time to say, our Lord is Lord. That of the youth and that of our lives. As you pay attention to some of these messages that we might have had in chapel, um, you pay attention to your profs and maybe some of the, uh, uh, us that are staff, you listen to the lives of us who commit to working with you. Understand and realize that we believe in the mission of this college, where truth, righteousness, and justice and holiness is the cornerstone. And it's the same we want for you, because as we think of the ML Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he believed that love, God's love, demonstrated through us who are called by his name is the basis of, any, of turning any type of enemy into a friend. Dr. King's initially focused on ending segregation, Jim Crow laws, racial discrimination, and the like. His work evolved in, uh, to include addressing economic and political injustice at home and abroad. Dr. King served as an example for us as a drum major for the oppressed, for the voiceless. Who are we to be? Isaiah 61 says, the spirit of the, oh, I love this passage. The spirit of the Lord, the sovereign Lord is upon us to, because the Lord has anointed us to preach good news to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, in Quincy, in Boston, in wherever in our community, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning, and a garment of praise, instead of a spirit of despair. As we reflect on the significance of Dr. Martin Luther King's life, his work, his beliefs, his example, how do you see yourself? How do you see God using you as an agent of change? Today we have with us an old friend, somebody who has spent many, uh, quite a bit of time here in the Boston area and been here at ENC some, for, for many a time. He shared last night some of his earlier, um, uh, an, an earlier visit about some band, 77, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Anyhow, Dr. Ra is the Milton Egbertson Associate Professor of Church Growth and Evangelism at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. He was the founding and senior pastor of Cambridge Community Fellowship Church right here in Cambridge. He's committed to, uh, to urban ministry. 
He's committed to living out the values of racial reconciliation and social justice in the urban context. His most recent work, uh, Prophetic Lament, is, is here. Um, a, a call for justice in troubled times um, is something that, um, that, that we've all come to um, not just enjoy, but to learn from. He has many degrees from, um, from Columbia, from Gordon-Conwell, from Duke, from Harvard, but he's a man who loves God. Let's give Dr. Ra a warm Eastern Nazarene College welcome. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much, ENC. I'm really honored and privileged to be here. Uh, as was mentioned, uh, my very first visit to this campus I realized I actually did the number on this, and it was almost 24, 25 years ago that I first visited this campus, uh, and I was in that little auditorium listening to one of my favorite Christian rock bands uh, playing here at uh, ENC. And so over the last 24 plus years that I've known ENC, uh, every four or five years or so I get the invitation to come and to speak at a chapel or to, to uh, address the, uh, the students or uh, to, to connect with the, the folks here. So I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity to be here with you. Uh, just, uh, just, a, just a quick word on this. When I was first year 24 plus years ago, um, the composition of the student body was very different. And it's amazing to see over the last 24 years and every five years as I've visited, uh, how much uh, this community is more reflecting of the kingdom of God in its diversity. And this is a tremendous credit to your faculty, to your staff, to your administration, to your president, to your leadership, uh, to actually see several decades ahead and say, if we don't have diversity in our school, we're not gonna survive long-term as an institution. We're not gonna reflect the values of the kingdom of God. And what I've seen over the last 24 years as I've visited over the, off and on uh, is to see God at work and bringing this incredible diversity, reflecting more and more what the kingdom of God is going to be like, uh, is like. So my, my, my thankfulness and gratitude for what's going on here. Uh, and I'm also very thankful for the opportunity to speak on uh, a King commemoration type of uh, chapel. Um, I, I do this at least twice a year. I get opportunity to speak at special events around the King holiday. And I'm always overwhelmed by that, that as an Asian American, I'm uh, allowed to speak about and speaking in honor of, 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 of a great hero in American history. Uh, and as a historian, I'm really uh, overwhelmed that as an Asian, I can speak about the life of an African-American leader, spiritual leader, and uh, uh, a national leader. Uh, so those kind of invitations I take very seriously, uh, that as an Asian-American, I'm, I'm speaking about um, a person who uh, not only saw justice for the African-American community, but justice for America, justice for all Americans. And the fact that um, I own a home in, in the city of Chicago is because of the work of Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement. The fact that my kids can go to the nearby public school is because of the work of Dr. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. The fact that I was able to go to the long list of schools that I attended is a testament to the work of Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement. So when we talk about something like the King holiday and these moments, we need to see this as the larger picture of the good that can happen for the whole community and the blessing that King and, and the Civil Rights Movement was not just to African Americans, but to all Americans. And so I wanna honor that and acknowledge that from the very beginning. 
but that is not to say that we are not living in some very intriguing and interesting times. That there are certainly things that are happening in the world around us that could lead us to, to walk through and process and try to figure out well, what's going on. Um, I said last night that there will never be shortage of changes in our culture and world. That's just going to happen all the time. There will be changes in the way the city looks, the way the city of Boston looks, the way the city of Quincy looks is very different than it was 15, 20 years ago. The way the denominations look, the way our country looks. These things are constant in the history of the church and in the history of the United States. We're always going to have challenges that come with drastic and dramatic changes in the world around us. So the question is never, are we going to have challenges and changes? The question is, how are we going to respond? What are we going to do as a church? There will always be ups and downs and challenges and difficulties and changes. That's just the given of the reality of life on human, in human society. That's not an issue. The issue is how will we as a church respond to the way the world around us is changing? So I want us to take a look at the book of Isaiah chapter 7 and examine how God's people can respond and should respond when there are challenges around us, particularly when there are things that can create some significant sense of fear and anxiety. So Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. So let's think about the context of Isaiah chapter 7 very, very briefly. Um, you know, most of you know the history. Um, Israel, once a, a 12 tribes, uh, once a great nation under David and Solomon. We know that after Solomon's death, uh, the kingdom actually splits into two. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Judah is kind of the legitimate line in that it is where the line of David is and also where Jesus will come through the line of Judah, through the, uh, through the uh, Judah kingdom. Now, um, these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they split and they also kind of have different trajectories. So, but both of them end up kind of walking away from faith, walking away from the worship of God. And so you end up with a very kind of convoluted history of Israel. Now, the northern kingdom, Israel, which is also oftentimes called, and that's in the blue there, dark blue, uh, is also sometimes called Ephraim, which was the largest tribe of the northern kingdoms of Israel. Uh, they were siding with another group called uh, the, Aram, uh, the Aramites, and they were the country of Aram, whose capital was Damascus, and that's in the green on your picture right there. So if you combine the blue and the green, those are the two forces that were joining together, the northern kingdom of Israel and the northwestern kingdom here that you see of Aram slash Damascus. They were fearful of what you can't see on this map. At the very, very top, you see the phrase the Assyrian Empire. They were fearful of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were this growing superpower in the ancient Near East at that time. They had mastered a particular form of warfare that was frightening everybody in the entire ancient Near East. They had mastered something called siege warfare. And they would lay siege to a city, blockade them off, and then eventually starve them out. So the Assyrians were seen not, as a, not just as a military political threat, but a brutal and heartless, kind of a cruel military threat. And that if the Assyrians would come in to conquer your nation, you were probably going to be wiped out as a people. And so you can see way up in the north, the Assyrian Empire growing in power, uh, getting uh, fearful of this growth, that Israel, the northern kingdom, and Aram said, we need to stop Assyria. We need to prevent them from taking over the rest of the ancient Near East. And in order to do that, they said, we need the help of Judah, the southern kingdom, 
and that's in the purple, salmon, teal, whatever color that is, uh, that group needed to be on the side of this alliance of Israel and Aram. So the king of, uh, of Israel, at, of Judah at the time, um, uh, who was a, a man by the name of Ahaz, began to be very afraid of this emerging geopolitical situation. Now you can imagine this, right? You've got two, you've got a superpower way to the north, Assyria, that's threatening you. But then you've got this kind of buffer nations in between, and you're also afraid because they're coming up against you. If we go to the next slide, we see in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 2 that the house of David was told, Aram, which is Aram Damascus, has allied itself with Ephraim, which is Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz, the king of Judah, and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Now, that's some serious fear. You're literally shaking in your boots about what's going on around you. And I want to talk about the nature of fear for a moment because what's happening in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2 that's being described here is not a false fear. It is a very legitimate fear. Assyrians are a superpower, and if they come and take over, they're going to wipe you out. And if Aram and Israel takes over the kingdom of Judah, that's going to be very damaging to the people of God. So we're not talking about a contrived fear or a fear of something that doesn't exist. This is an actual fear, so fearful in fact, that the people of Judah, their hearts are shaken and they're literally shaking in the boots as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So what we're dealing with here is a very real fear that needs to be dealt with. Now, I'm going to give some illustrations here. Some of the illustrations might be controversial, but I want us to understand that this is a fear, a legitimate fear, that people actually feel. And we can't delegitimize that fear because there are very real circumstances that lead to that fear. So I'll give you four snapshots. The first snapshot was uh, I was watching a report on CNN, real news on CNN, and as I was watching this report on CNN, uh, they were saying that of the 15 million jobs that were created over the last eight years, 14.9 million of those jobs required a college degree. That only 100,000 out of those 15 million new jobs, which by the way, that's fantastic for the economy, to have 15 new million jobs in, in the last eight years, only 100,000 of those jobs were jobs created for those with just a high school degree. So what they were pointing out is that over the last eight years, we have seen unemployment drop significantly. We have seen a significant uh, movement in the economy. But it is actually focused on generally urbanites, generally those with college degrees. And those who do not have college degrees have legitimately felt left behind with, a with what they see as a declining economy. So as an educated person who lives in the city of Chicago, I look at the numbers and I say, actually, unemployment's going down. Actually, there are a lot of jobs for my graduates to find when they graduate from college with a degree in engineering, with a degree in science, with a degree in business. They've got some job opportunities. But that's because 14.9 million jobs were created that was for college graduates. But 100,000 jobs for non-college graduates, that's a very small number. So I understand that there is a legitimate fear that says I'm being left behind in this new economy. I won't have a job. And not only will I not have a job, my children won't have a job. 
And so that's why there is a legitimate real fear that many in our culture, in our society, are nervous about what's going on in the world around them. And that is not a falsified fear. That is a very real fear. That's why when it came to the election result, it doesn't surprise anybody that the rural poor went in very large numbers to a particular candidate because of a legitimate fear of the economy leaving them behind. So I want to acknowledge that to say there are legitimate fears. There are legitimate reasons why people were maybe moved by those fears to vote a certain way or to act a certain way or respond a certain way because the world around them they saw felt like things were coming against them. So that's one example of a legitimate fear of what was going on in the world around us. But there's another, some other examples as well. And one example is of uh, one of my students. Uh, and one of my students, a uh, Korean-American, uh, her husband is African-American, and they have a biracial child. Beautiful, beautiful little baby. Um, and she comes to me, and she starts weeping, and she starts just, just, just in, in tears talking about her fears. This is uh, about a year and a half ago. And she's talking about the fact that her husband is an African-American, uh, African-American male. She was in fear for his life. This is at a time when there was a series of shootings when unarmed, and when unarmed black men were being shot in the streets by law enforcement officers. Now, forget about the politics of this for a moment. Just think about those words I just said. An unarmed person was shot by law enforcement. Now, we need to deal with that legitimate fear as a response to what they've seen as what's going on in the world around them. So she's in tears saying, I have a biracial child. What's going to be her future in a country when her father is seen as someone who can be gunned down for, for in, in many cases for no reason at all? That's a legitimate fear. And we can't say, well, it's this and that. No, we have to acknowledge that this is a legitimate fear felt by black men in our society. And we can't dismiss that or sweep that under the rug. I had another student. Uh, she's a DACA student, which means uh, she came into this country undocumented at the age of two. And, uh, and then, uh, so her children, her, I'm sorry, her younger siblings are, are born in the U.S., but she's the oldest of her family who was not born in the U.S. She was born in Mexico, uh, but she's uh, one of the dreamers. So she comes to our school and she registers as a dreamer, which means that she is given kind of the special dispensation to stay legally into this country as a student. And so now she is studying to be a minister as in, in seminary. And her fear is that all the things that she trusted her government to do, to care for her, and she did the right thing, by the way. They were told, if you want to stay in this country, then go ahead and register. But now what she did, the right thing she did, can actually be used against her. Now, she didn't come into this country walking across the border. She came in a plane, and she was two years old. So did she do something illegal in her individual act? Is she an illegal human being? No, she's not. She's someone made in the image of God who because of circumstances came into the U.S. without documentation but has lived in the U.S. for 20 plus years and was trying to become a part of our society by actually studying to become a pastor. And now she was in fear because even though she herself has done everything right, signed up when she was supposed to, registered when she was supposed to, she was now having a very legitimate fear of deportation. There was a legitimate fear that is happening in the world around us.
This really struck home for me with my, uh, I have a 16-year-old daughter. Uh, I have a 16-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old son. And my 16-year-old is, is just this, this shining light. Uh, she uh, attends, a, uh, we live in the city, so she attends a high school in the city. Uh, and uh, our neighborhood is very diverse in the city of Chicago. It's one of the most diverse zip codes in the United States. And so what we've seen is that our kids' friendships reflect the diversity of our neighborhood. And so my daughter has the most amazing set of friends. Uh, she has um, uh, Latino friends. She has African American, her best friend is African American. She has uh, Muslim friends. Um, she got asked to homecoming by a white boy. That's good. That's fine. We're, I'm okay with that. Uh, so uh, she's someone who has this kind of wide range of friendships because it reflects our neighborhood. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God that I see when she hangs out and spends time with her friends. Now, what happened was that her birthday is in late October, but because she had some competitions for her team, uh, because of finals, she said, can we postpone my, my birthday until like the uh, uh, November? And it turned out her birthday party was scheduled for the Wednesday after the election results, the Wednesday after the election. Uh, so we're a little bit nervous because, you know, uh, we have parents who are, who are a little bit nervous, but we said, let's go ahead and have the party. And, and the group gathers in our home, and it's about 25 kids, and it is the most amazing, beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. There are Muslim friends of hers who are wearing the hijab, who are sitting at the table with Christian friends. There are what we might call undocumented immigrants who are growing up in the Pentecostal church and who are an important part of uh, Spanish-speaking congregations, and they're sitting around that table. And I look around and I see this amazing, beautiful picture of the kingdom of God and say, that's why I want to teach that's why I want to preach. That's why I want to serve the church because I believe the church can look like this table of my daughter's friends. So like any kind of uh, kid's party, we ran out of pizza. So I had to go out to get, get more pizza. So I'm getting in my car and one of the, her friends, my daughter's friends, comes a little bit late. She's a Muslim girl and she's wearing her hijab. The mom pulls up to our, to our street and the little girl gets out, 16-year-old girl gets out. And I'm remembering, wait, they live about four blocks from our house. Why is her mom driving her four blocks to come to a birthday party? And then I catch the eye of the mom in the car. I would never forget the look on her face, the look of fear and anxiety, very legitimate fear and anxiety, that she was terrified that her 16-year-old girl because of what she wore on her head, her life was in danger, and they didn't trust the society around her for her to walk four blocks to a teenage girl's birthday party. And I saw the fear, the nervousness in that mother's face, and I said, that's not what America is about. There should be no fear like that for a mom not to be able to trust a 16-year-old girl to walk four blocks to a birthday party. That's not the way we're supposed to be. And the church should do everything possible to make sure that our neighbors do not have that kind of fear. There is a legitimate fear in our society right now, and we cannot gloss over it. I want to talk about how this relates to kind of the way that American society has, has operated in terms of fear. Uh, let's go to the next slide. 
Uh, this is the work of Willie Jennings, my, my advisor at, uh, that's threat by the way, not threat at, uh, the word three, uh, threat there. Um, my advisor at, uh, at Duke University talks about the way race relations operate in this quadrangle, especially around the issue of gender. So the question is, some of this fear that is in our society, is it because a particular perspective is elevated as the main perspective in the world? In, a, in American society. So, when we take this paradigm, when the white male looks at the black male, the perception of the black male by the white male becomes defining for all of society. So, one of the things that comes up in sociological research is that when a white male views a black male, there are two categories, generally speaking, that the white male views the black male. One as a pet, and the second as a threat. The pet matrix usually points towards the fact that we love in our society to have black men as entertainers, as football players and basketball players, as comedians, as hip-hop artists. We love the black male entertainer. But the second, the black male entertainer, moves even slightly into the realm of threat, that's when we have to shut it down. So if a football player who is supposed to entertain us, if that football player takes a knee during the national anthem, he is no longer a pet, he has become a threat, and he must be quashed. If a Christian hip-hop artist has done a great job of entertaining us by regurgitating reformed theology, but the second he talks about race, he is no longer the pet, he is now a threat, he must be shut down. So what we're dealing with is that the way we view certain people in our society is determined by the dominant culture's gaze. So think with me about the most dangerous human being in American society according to the 6 o'clock news. The most dangerous human being in the 6 o'clock news is the unidentified black male. The unidentified black male. Today in Boston, there was an unidentified black male who shot up a liquor store. Today, on the south side, we saw an unidentified black male involved in a gang fight. Today, uh, in the suburbs, an unidentified black male knocked over a liquor store. This unidentified black male is approximately 150 pounds to 300 pounds. He's anywhere from 5 foot 7 to 6 foot 7, anywhere from 15 to 45 years old. If you have seen such a person, please contact the authorities immediately. So... A 12-year-old kid playing in a park in Cleveland because he is an unidentified black male, within a split second, he's gunned down. A 12-year-old kid. My son was 12 when Tamir Rice was killed. And if my son were jumping around, if you see the video right before he was killed, he is literally jumping around like a 12-year-old would. And then the split second the police arrives, he's dead. He's shot down. Because as an unidentified male, he's a threat. So a teenager in a hoodie with Lipton iced tea, or whatever iced tea he had, and Skittles, is a threat. And because he's deemed a threat, it's not a problem if you shoot him. So there is a narrative that is out there that generates this kind of fear. Now, there's another factor to this. We talk about the white male gaze upon the black male. 
What happens when the black male gazes upon the white female? History tells us the black man is dead. Emmett Till, case in point. Repeatedly, when the black male is caught looking at the white female, that black male is such a sexual threat that the white male must do everything to protect the white female and kill the black male. And so what we have is created a culture of fear that says black men are predators. And, and especially in their physical assault potential on white women. And that's why it is not irrelevant when we say, or when the culture says, Mexicans are rapists. That is buying into this entire narrative of fear. The non-white male as a sexual violent threat against white women. What we're dealing with is a culture of fear. And society telling you this is who you are. You are the pet or the threat. You are the person that's going to entertain me or you're the person that's going to kill me and rape my wife. That's the narrative that exists in our society. How are we supposed to respond to this fear? Both real and unreal. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 4. Say to him, be careful, keep calm. That's actually, you know those little t-shirts with keep calm? That's from here. It's from the Bible. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramalia. Verse 5, Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted our ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel over it. Verse 4 points out, listen, you are in the house of David. You are in the line of David. The Messiah will come through your line. Why are you afraid of these smoldering stubs of firewood? These matches that are burning out. Why are you afraid of these smoldering stubs of firewood? It actually says they're going to come and they're going to take over our land. They're going to take us away and they're going to make the son of Tabeel as ruler over us. The word Tabeel in Hebrew means Nothing. Nobody. So they're not even saying, we're going to put nobody in your place. We're going to bring the offspring of nobody and nothing and take your place. And so when Isaiah, uh, when Isaiah comes and when Yahweh speaks to Isaiah, he's reminding them, remember who you are. You are God's chosen people. You are of the house of David. And a smoldering stub of firewood, this unlit match or even burnt out match, who's trying to contrive and, and conspire to put a son of nobody in your place, you don't have to be afraid. You can be strong. Because your identity would not be shaped by the way the world looks at you. Your identity would not be shaped by when the world says you're a pet or a threat or you're a sexual predator or you're this, you're that. You're all these things that the world has said, this is who you are. You are not bound to that identity because you are in the house of David, a child of God. So when we are told this is who we are by society, you're a problem, you're a threat, you've got nothing good to contribute, you're illegal, you're, you're a terrorist, you're a, you're a violent felon. We say, no, we are one made in the image of God. We are in the house of David. And this is where I would leave a challenge for you. Will you be willing to stand up and be strong 
when the world tells you you are this broken, this messed up, this threat, this pet, will you stand up and say, not in the eyes of God. Not in the eyes of God. I am a man, a woman, made in the image of God, in the house and line of David, and one who can stand against these smoldering stubs of firewood and these sons of nothing. We will stand as the people of God for his justice, for his righteousness, for his mercy and his truth, because we are in that line of David. Lord, I thank you that out of nothing you can create sons and daughters of your kingdom, out of brokenness and out of evil and sinfulness, you can raise up sons and daughters of mercy, grace, justice, and righteousness. So I thank you in this house, the house of David, the house of Emmanuel, God with us, the house of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you are raising up sons and daughters. And as you did decades ago, through Martin Luther King Jr., through the Civil Rights Movement, you are now in this day raising up sons and daughters of righteousness and justice who understand the world will not define who we are, but instead will go forth as those called, as those who are living and under the glory and righteousness and justice of the house of God. We pray that you would send us forth. In your name we pray. Amen. Go forth in your name. Before you take off, before you take off, real quick, I know this is, I know it's 11.15, real quick. One, I just wanted to remind folks that uh, Dr. Sung Chanra's book, books are available in the back for purchase if you want, but also I want you to do this. Can everyone stand? I'd like for you to look at someone standing next to you. And if you are willing and if you are ready, and if you can say this honestly, if you can look to someone next to you, look them in the face and say, by the grace of God, I will work to see you as created in the image of God. Go in his grace and peace this day.